0: So if, God, if Jesus told parables to call into question our understanding of God and who he is, if this is the purpose of Jesus telling parables, and I think it is, then I, I believe this might be the most perfect parable that Jesus told. In verse 1, St. Luke excuse me, says that Jesus told it to encourage us to persevere. And I think that idea is certainly central to this parable. When Luke wrote it, he was possibly thinking of all the believers who were at the time of his writing decades removed from Jesus' death and resurrection and the promise that he had made that he would return. And they were probably losing hope, maybe, and needed some encouragement. Excuse me. And for us today, it is even more necessary. 2,000 years have passed. Since Jesus told us he would come again, and it seems we're no closer to his return than the early believers were way back then. It's easy to lose faith. It's easy to give up. It's easy to think maybe it's impossible. Maybe he's not coming back, and maybe there is no ultimate vindication. And so this parable has often been read and understood not incorrectly, as having these eschatological overtones and purpose. This context that Luke gives it about persevering also lends to it an interpretation of what scholars call a negative comparison, a how much more, a how much more argument. Snodgrass points out, Klein Snodgrass, a a modern day scholar, points out that as early as Augustine, the parable was understood in this light, the, the negative comparison. If the wicked judge could be swayed by persistent entreaty, then how much more certain may we be that God hears our prayers? Okay. And Ibn al Taib, he was an 11th century Middle Eastern New Testament scholar, wrote about this parable. There it is. If the wicked judge could be swayed by persistent entreaty... No, nope, sorry, that's not what he says. That was, that was not gross. It is said that the purpose of this parable is to clarify what is incumbent on the believers during the life of the present church as regards perseverance and persistence and heartfelt, fervent prayer. So the faithful pray with full confidence that if they accomplish this, there is no doubt that God will come to them with joy, look upon their suffering and torment, and grant them victory at the appropriate time. And I think these are accurate and helpful readings of this parable. Lessons that can and certainly encourage us as we go through very difficult times or, or maybe not so difficult times. And I'm sure many of us are very familiar with these teachings on this parable if, if we have been in church for uh, a number of years at all. We've heard this parable and we've heard these teaching on it. But in verse 7, Luke quotes Jesus as saying that God will justify his people. And will not God bring about justice for his people? And it is in this context that Jesus himself gives for the parable, that I believe we can discover the deeper heart of this parable, and see just how perfect this parable is. For this is where Christ is often at his most brilliant, when we read through the Gospels. He tells these parables, and when he uses them to call into our question, our human understanding of God, then these parables are at their absolute most brilliant. And um, their breadth and height and depth is just exceptional. So let's start at the beginning of this parable. And what we notice right off the bat is Jesus begins with his typical distrust of and scathing commentary of cultural norms. Okay? And it's hard to see this in the English translation. But once we immerse ourselves here into the history, the, the place and time that he's telling it will know. He makes a widow the hero of this story. Okay, so he makes the widow a hero of the story. And not just any widow, but one who has no one left in her life. Bailey, the Middle Eastern scholar that I refer to a lot, points out that in this society, men go to court. Women do not go to court. So for this woman to be at court means she has no brother, uncle, son, father, etc., no one in her life that will go to court for her. So that's so. There's that. On top of this, widows were often the most outcast of society. Again, quoting Snodgrass on widows: widows are often left with no means of support. If her husband left an estate, she did not inherit. And, what? That's not even a word. Wow, where did that come from? Here? She did not inherit. If she remained in her husband's family. She had an inferior, almost servile position. If she returned to her family, the money exchanged at the wedding had to be given back. Widows were so victimized that they were often sold as slaves for debt. Widows, that'd be fun to be a widow in that society, huh? And consider Lamentations. This this, Lamentations draws on a widow as, as, as an illustration. How deserted lies this city once so full of people. So a deserted city, this prophet is comparing to a widow. Who was once great, she was, was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Widows in that day. Widows. And this is who Christ makes the hero of the story. See, this is what we love about Christ. If you were here last week, you remember he made a shepherd of a hero of that parable. And we looked at how disdained shepherds were and how completely and utterly for him to stand up and say, I am the good shepherd was just the biggest oxymoron ever because shepherds were just the, the refuse of society at that time. So here he holds up a widow and makes her a hero. So on one level, he's indicting the, the culture for their total disregard for widows. That's, and, and for his people, he's even more furious. Because if you read the Old Testament closely, God is very clear that widows should be taken care of. I, I think it's about 250 times in the Old Testament God says that. Take care of widows and orphans in their distress. Some 250 times. And by the time Jesus shows up, they're really taking care of widows, aren't they? Doing a great job of it. So this is Jesus' way of just what he always does, that powerful, powerful uh, sarcasm that he just holds right in front of them as a mirror and says, Really? Let me tell you about widows. They're awesome. But at another level, Jesus is asserting that same theme that we've been looking at right along now in this series that started back in the summer. This entire series that I'm doing, it's preparing us for Galatians. We are going to get to Galatians, trust me. But the more I study Galatians, the more I'm like, wow. Uh, we just got to keep preparing for it by really hitting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise we get there and you're like, why is Paul so ripping mad that these people have left the gospel? And then I'm like, oh, because we've all left the gospel. Right, so let's talk about the Right, so, so this is why. Honestly, we are getting to Galatians. We're getting there. Ron, we're going to get to the gifts of the Spirit. might be 2019. <laughs> and if you move back to and if, you, if you've gone home to Sri Lanka, I'll come there and do the teaching, okay? But hopefully you'll still be with us and whenever we get to uh, chapter five, I think that is. What is happening here is he's bringing up this theme that this parable is ultimately all about, and all his parable is about. It is the lost who are found. Like that beautiful song I just played that I was telling Dave, I'd love to hear the band do. It's okay. Because if you get lost, you will surely be found. If you are lost, you are, the, the lost are found, the least are made great, and the dead are raised again. And in fact, right before this, we find Christ, without parable, explaining this eternal truth. So right before he tells his parable, he says this in plain language, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And again, this isn't a, a reward, a, a do-something consequence, an imperative statement. This is this is just pointing out reality that if we're holding on to all these things, so the opening video we started with today, if we're building all these altars and holding on to all these things that we think are going to save us and make our lives better, then we can't open our hands and receive the only thing that can make our lives better, which is grace. So if we're going to hold on to our life, it's never going to do it for us. If we let our life go, then grace can swoop in and save us. This is the gospel. This is the beautiful gospel of Christianity. So, this lady knows her situation is hopeless. She is lost and cannot save herself, so all she does is throw herself on the mercy of the judge. I want you to think about this, because this is where Jesus starts to pull us out of our understanding of God and ourselves, and reveals his understanding of God and God's understanding of humanity. See, think of this. This is a foolish thing to do. Even though we even have this idiom in our language, throw yourself at the mercy of the courts. This is a foolish thing to do because judges don't have mercy. Courts don't have mercy. Judges are about justice. It's the law. It's their job. They get paid to do it. And in fact, if they get caught not meeting out justice, they lose their job. They get taken off the bench. They have to do the law. They have to do justice. It is their job. So it is foolish to seek mercy in the court system. There is no mercy in the court system. Yes, your story can be horrific. Horrific, horrific, horrific. And everything about human decency can say, you deserve a different judgment. But if it's not justice, it doesn't matter. But, so it's foolish to throw yourself on the mercy of the court, but isn't it interesting that St. Paul said the gospel's foolishness. starting to see? This is why I think this may be the perfect parable. So here's what I think is going on. I believe Jesus meant for this judge to be the God figure. Yes, this this horrible judge, to be the God figure. And I know that seems foolish, but hear me up. First off, there's no direct language that this is a negative comparison. Even Even though I said that's a very fair reading of this gospel, there's no direct language that it is a negative comparison parable. And whenever Jesus did do negative comparisons, he usually made it clear that that's what he was doing. So, for example, in Matthew, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? right? So there's a the negative comparison, but he's very clear about that in explaining the parable. He's not clear in this parable that he explains that. He says, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice? See, he doesn't, there's no negative comparison language in the parable, though so that's a perfectly good way to read it. But second, see, I believe Jesus was not afraid to use the profane to reveal the sacred. We get uptight about that. Very uptight about using the profane to talk about the sacred. I don't think Jesus ever was. That's why he said, I'm the good shepherd. That's why he's using a widow as a hero of his story. So an unjust judge for him to reveal God, that's a perfect thing that Jesus would do. Because this judge is totally committed to nothing but justice. Nothing. And that's exactly what he does at first. No matter how many times she came, for some time he refused. He, re- he refused her request. So no matter how many times he came, she came to him, he refused. She didn't have a case. I'm sorry, ma'am, your life is miserable. It doesn't matter. You're not getting justice from me. There is no justice to give you. He is all about justice. There's no merit to her case, so he won't vindicate her. He's faithful to justice. But then eventually, and without reasonable cause, he grants her vindication. And this is where the parable gets crazy. Okay? He doesn't care what the legal profession says he should do. He doesn't care what people will say about him. He simply wants to be done with the whole mess. Are you starting? Is it starting? Is your mind starting to say, Oh, yeah, this parable is perfect. Wow, Jesus tells these incredible stories, doesn't he? See, humanity has always had a very definite idea of the God business. We have always had a very definite idea of the God business. You just have to do some historical studies on human religion. And humans have always known, always known how gods should act, proper gods. Right? So for thousands, who knows how many thousands and thousands of years before Jesus came, and for the couple thousand years since he came, humanity has insisted that God act in a way that they can understand. We've insisted on it. We've demanded it. We want God to act in a way of human power. We want God to act with human justice. We want eye-for-an-eye theology. We want transactionalism that somehow appeases God. We love that. So, there there is this doctrine within Christianity called the penal substitution theory. Which, by itself, Paul uses to help us as humans try to wrap our heads around this unbelievable mystery of of the cross, right? Because the cross is such a massive mystery. It's foolishness to us. So Paul said, oh, so sort of think about this. Think." So he uses a human justice illustration to help us get a little bit of the mystery of the cross. But he uses 10, 15 other illustrations to help us get to the mystery of the cross as well. Interestingly, what we tend to do as as people is When something makes sense to us humanly, we latch on to it and we won't let go of it. And then so what has happened, sadly, I think sadly, is that in, in many branches of Christianity, the penal substitution theory is the explanation of the cross. But it's not the explanation of the cross. There's not one of Paul's examples of the cross that is the explanation. It's all of those examples put together. But, as I've gotten older, and I've discovered this this craziness of the gospel, I realize why the penal substitution makes so much sense. Because it's so human. It's so human. Human justice. This is why the Greek gods were were so powerful and prevalent for so long, and remain without us realizing it. Many times we are probably worshipping Zeus and Prometheus and others much more than we're worshipping Jesus Christ. But the Greek mythology is so powerful because they're so us. They're superhuman, but they're not other. Very few of the Greek gods carry qualities that are other. Superhuman, no doubt. Humanity taken to a level some of us wish we were, which is why then I think, so I'm way off, and Jennifer's not here to tell me to get back on your notes. So (laughs) let me get back on my notes. Um, But... So then Jesus comes along and he says, no. No. God doesn't care about the whole God business. He doesn't care about the way you all think he should act. He simply wanted to be done with the whole mess we got ourselves into it. And he did it. On the cross. It is finished. Took care of that mess. All by himself. No help from us other than we're the ones who crucified. But that's not the kind of help that we tend to think we're helping God save the world, right? Although maybe, maybe. But my point is, he did it all by himself. So, see, in verse 3 and in verse 5, there are two words here in the original that are used for the widow asking for and the judge granting justification. Now these are part of a word group in the New Testament that speaks to the idea of justification. So Jesus throws these words in and then when he's talking about the parable near the end, I think that's what he's getting at here. I tell you, people see that they get justice and quickly. God's justice. God's vindication. Not our justice. That's what he's getting at. See, it's right after this, not long after telling of the parable, he went to the cross. And we know as we read the entire scriptures, that God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. And we know that that's how we are justified. He died for us because St. Paul, in his letters to the Ephesians, for by grace you saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, us any man. Right? So this whole thing is here. So back to our parable. This woman had no case. She simply kept insisting that the judge could be done with the whole mess if he simply chose to be. It's beautiful, this parable. I love this thing. And don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful parable just to help us persevere, but it's, it's so much bigger. And this is where the parable is most perfect if we let it, and it can speak to us most deeply. See, here's the thing. It is not that the woman had no case that is important by itself. What is important is the fact that she knew she had no case. This is what's important. She knew she could not rely on the law to save her. She needed mercy. Further, she believed she could find mercy, and so she begged for it. She knew the judge was capable of granting it if he chose to. This is the deep mystery of the gospel for all of us, all the time. See, salvation, transformation, whether it's the beginning of our faith journey or the middle of our faith journey, salvation, transformation happens in the mysterious power of this relationship. And this is the relationship we tend to lose as we move on in faith. It is this relationship that is so important. We have to be honest with ourselves about who we are. We have to be. Either we are lost and we need finding, that beginning of the faith journey, or we are messy and in need of cleaning, the ongoing faith journey. And when we lose that identity, then we stop being this widow and we prevent God from being As Luther said in the opening quote today, we are saint and sinner. And we have to hold on to that. This is the difference between true religion and false religion. This is the difference between living free and living in prison. And I'm not talking about theoretical theology, about human redemption, And I'm not pointing out nuances between Christian creeds and doctrines. And I'm not even making an us-them line between Christianity and other religions. That's not what I'm doing when I say between true religion and false religion. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm talking about is life. See, true religion takes us down into the depths of who we really are. So we can know God for who He really is. That's what true religion is. As painful as that is at times, and as uncomfortable as it is at times, we need true religion. We need Jesus pointing out that we're the widow. False religion establishes footholds for the very prison we insist on living in. False religion encourages us and tells us to wear our fig leaves. False religion doesn't let us be like the singer in the opening video today admitting, yes, I keep building altars in the sky, I keep holding on to all these things that won't help me. Please help me not do that. True religion helps us see for ourselves. Now, Richard Rohr, when talking about how to be in deep relationship with God, both redemptive relationship and transformative relationship, he says this, I really like this. The most important way is to live and fully accept our reality. This solution sounds so simple and innocuous that most of us fabricate all kinds of religious trappings to avoid taking up our own inglorious, mundane, and ever-present cross. I love that. Being honest about who we are and what we need. So here's the thing. Most often we avoid our realities. And this is where identity comes in. And I'm sorry. Church is often responsible for making us avoid our realities, and I'm sorry for that. If you've ever been hurt, church making you lie to yourself about who you really are, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if anything I've ever said over the years has done that indirectly. I've never wanted that. Church is is the place we're supposed to take our masks off. We're supposed to take the fig leaves off. We're supposed to stand naked before God. Thanking him for saving us. That's what this table's about. And sadly, this table gets turned into the very place where you're supposed to pretend to be something you're not. That's not what communion is for. Communion is the one place you can come and say, "Oh my gosh, I'm naked, God, I'm horrible. Thank you for saving me." What is our identity? What is your identity? What is it? Think about this. I've been thinking about this oh for weeks now. Is it our job? Is it our family? Is it our being a good spouse or a good parent? Is that our identity? Is it our kids? Is it the church we belong to? Is it the company we work for? Is it our looks? Our money? Our cars? Our political party? Our sports team? That's Rich's identity. <laughs> Listen. When we find ourselves... Here, here's... here's Here's what being honest is. Looking deep, and when we find ourselves in position of always defending, I want you think about this. When we find ourselves in position of always defending our beliefs, our politics, our reputations, our actions, our decisions, etc., or always offended because someone critiques our lives or our families or our jobs etc or etc cetera, etc cetera. and we find ourselves thinking and acting in ways which include hating our enemies a lot of that going on right now in the world being prejudiced being holier than thou, when we find ourselves being over and against this or that, instead of with and for this or that, when we find ourselves always trying to solve our problems or blaming others for our problems, etc., 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 it is because our identity is misplaced. Any way we look at it, that's what's happening when we're honest with ourselves. So, Jennifer says something to me, I flip out, I get angry, I treat her horribly for a week because of what she said, and then God drags me into this honest place where I can look inside and realize oh, she didn't do anything wrong boy, I was so offended by that critique because my identity was in that. What a small life. That my identity is so wrapped up in something that my spouse who loves me can make me a horrible person. What a shallow identity. And that's with someone who loves me. So now we get out in the real world where people don't always love us you're a teacher you're doing your best to help kids and all of a sudden parents hate you for no reason, right Dave? And that hurts when our identity is all wrapped up. in that, it happens to me, I, I coach and all I'm doing is giving and giving and giving and parents hate me for nothing and it hurts until I remember, wait, what, it's not my identity? How many of us have enemies? How many of us have people that don't like us and say things about us? How many of us get on Facebook and we hate this candidate or that candidate or that church or this church or this doctrine is stupid and and on and on it goes. Why? Why? Where's your identity? Is it in that? Being right? Being right? They used to hate each other. There were flat worlders and round worlders and they hate each other. Now we sort of laugh at that. What are people going to laugh at us in a thousand years for? They actually have thought about that? Huh? Isn't that weird? But it's our identity. Here's the good news. You ready? Instead of wearing fig leaves in mass, we can be covered in grace. Here's what St. Paul says our identity and true religion says about our identity You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's an identity that's never going away. Ever. Ever. Hmm. And that starts with knowing we are a mess and it's okay. It's okay. Knowing, as our hearable in the, hero in the parable did, that we have no case. We have no case. But knowing it doesn't matter because God can take care of that Himself. And that's the second half of this relationship. Trusting God is merciful. We can have faithful insistence that God can take care of it because Jesus came to reveal that no matter how crazy it sounds, He already did take care of it. The lamb slain before the foundations of the world. It's already our mess was taken care of before it even happened at some level which is like quantum physics stuff that you, you just mind goes. But it just we have to trust that. And if God already took care of the big mess, then surely he's going to take care by himself of all our little messes. So, it is for us to persevere. The parable is absolutely about perseverance. But perseverance, not in believing we can wrestle this stuff out of God. No, persevering in believing that this God of grace that died for us because he loves us, wants to give it to us. See, maybe that's why the woman went to this unjust judge. Because she knew, you know what? (laughs) He won't be faithful to his job. (laughs) He'll just do whatever he wants. Thank God, God isn't faithful to what we think God should be. And he just does whatever he wants and what he wants is to love us and die for us. It is the Father's will that none should perish and that we should all live free it is for us to persevere in believing that his way is life that when we are lost we are found when we are least we are great when we are dead we are finally alive there's the paradigm shift that the mystery of the gospel offers us let's all move in this direction embracing who we really are and more importantly who God really is For that is life, and I believe that is life now and forever. Thanks be to God.